But this morning we're going to continue our series on uh, talk about heaven. And I want to uh, talk to you this morning before our communion time. How will we relate in heaven? Statistics show us, have calculated, that the mortality rate of the world is about 0.883%. You might wonder, what does that mean? That means that one out of every 113 people in the world died last year. Based on that rate, here's an estimate of the death among people now living in the world. There's a death every one point or there's 1.78 deaths per second. There's 107 deaths per minute. There's 6,390 deaths per hour. There's 153,000 deaths per day. And that yields 56 million people will die every year. Uh, it seems interesting to me that for the most part, people seem unconcerned, even uninterested in such a reality. People don't like to talk about that. But there is, I think, in the heart of every individual a sense of the impending reality of death. And the purpose of this study on heaven is so that we can, as believers, get excited about heaven's realities. The reality of heaven beyond death. The Bible tells us that we need to set our affection on things above. We need to accumulate our treasure in heaven, not on earth. We need to set our affection on those things above. And I think that it's, it's important for us in the day and age in which we live, the world in which we live, that we realize that death is a reality. But just as much as death is a reality, so is heaven for those that have put their faith or trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Just way of review, we've looked a little bit about what heaven is. We talked about the priority of heaven. Uh, We want to understand that we here on this earth, as Christians, we're called strangers, we're called pilgrims, we're called aliens in this earth. We don't belong here. We belong somewhere else. But we're here for the time being. Well, what is heaven? We talked about heaven being a place. We looked at the planetary heaven, the divine heaven, the uh, atmospheric heaven, and that divine heaven is where the domain where God rules and reigns. His presence is there. Where is heaven? It's up. The Bible tells us that. It's a long ways up. What is heaven like? We've looked at this in the past week. We know that the people who, who occupies heaven, we answered this question. God, the holy angels, and the saints, those who've trusted in Christ, those who've put their faith in God. There's no purgatory. There's no in-between place between heaven and hell. You're either in heaven or hell once you die. What is heaven like? We looked at Ezekiel chapter 1, and that didn't really give us much information. It gave us a lot of information, but we really didn't understand it. Uh, his, his vision of heaven was something of lights and spinning wheels and just... It almost seemed uh, unreal when you read it. But he did the best he could in relating what, what awaits us in heaven. In John, in Revelation chapter 4, he talks about heaven's throne. He talks about a temple in heaven. It's not an actual building. It's the, it's the actual God. It's God himself is the temple. Based on uh, Revelation twenty one twenty two, It's the Lord himself. And we're going to be pillars in that temple. Christ promised us a place forever in the very presence of God when we put our faith and trust in Him. Last week, we looked at what we'll be like. We talked about the new person in Christ, the constant problem of sin in this body. Even though we're a new person in Christ, we still are weighed down by the sin of this body and the sin of the world. But heaven is a place for only those who are perfected. And so one day, as Christians, we will have a perfected soul. We will know perfect pleasure, perfect knowledge, perfect comfort, perfect love, perfect joy. But we won't only have a perfected soul in heaven, but we'll have a perfected body. And I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that. The ultimate perfection of this body uh, will, be, will be perfected in every possible way. It's a body that will be resurrected. When we die as Christians, if we died, if I died right now, my spirit would go to be with the Lord. My body would still be here. You'd have to pick it up off the floor and call the mortuary and they would come and pick it up. And eventually 
I would end up somewhere. But that body one day will be resurrected and rejoined with my spirit, the second coming. And then it will be a resurrected body. It will be a body that's imperishable, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, the Bible says, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown as a natural body, raised as a spiritual body. We looked last week at the illustration of a seed. A seed is dead. You put it in the ground, you water it, and all of a sudden it gives life. Well, that's exactly what this body is going to do. It's going to be imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual, and it's going to be Christ-like, which is going to be neat. Philippians chapter 3, verse 21 says, God will transform our bodies into conformity with the body of his glory, of Christ's glory. Romans 8.29 says that we are predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. 1 John 3.2 says we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him just as he is. The best picture of what we'll be like in heaven is Jesus Christ after his resurrection. As you read the Gospels in his glorified body, Christ ascended into heaven. But while he was here on earth... He was able to walk through doors. He was able to appear suddenly in places that were cordoned off. He ate with his disciples on several occasions in his resurrected body. Revelation 22, 2 says that there will be fruit-bearing trees in heaven. So I'm glad with the fact that we're going to be able to eat in heaven. We won't have to eat. And we won't eat too little or too much. It's going to be neat. It's going to be a great place. Well, today I want us to look at how we will relate to one another once we get to heaven. You ever think about that? A lot of people say different things. Well, we know that there's going to be angels in heaven. So I want us to look, first of all, how we will relate to the angels, our relationship to the angels. Martin Luther believed that an angel is a spiritual creature without a body created by God for the service of Christendom in the church. That's what he believed. Angels move about always attending to the presence of God. That's what they do. And since God is in heaven, there's going to be angels in heaven as well. The Bible tells us that over and over and over again. God is often called the Lord of hosts. And that's a title that refers to his being surrounded by all these holy angels. God always has holy angels in his presence. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 17 says that we will always be with the Lord when we leave this place, when we leave this earth. And if we're always going to be with the Lord, then we're always going to be with angels. So my question is, how are we going to interact with them? Well, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, it says this, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. Myriads refers to an innumerable number, something you can't even number. We're going to be communing with angels in heaven when we enter the heavenly Jerusalem. Uh, Verse 23 of Hebrews 12 says, The general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. See, the elect angels and the elect saints form an elect company of inhabitants in the new heaven and the new earth. Now, angels are spiritual beings. Remember that. They don't have a physical body. They're they're spirit. However, they can take on human form when God desires them to, because we see angels in the garden. We see angels in other places in Scripture. So they take on some form. We don't understand how our glorified bodies will be able to act, interact with these spiritual beings, but we will. Uh, In heaven, we'll be able to perceive what to us in the physical world is now invisible. Somehow they'll be visible to us in our glorified body. So we'll commune with angels. We'll also rejoice with them. Uh, some Christians wonder, boy, I wonder if when all the saints get up to heaven, if, if the angels are going to get jealous. You know, I mean, this, they've had the, 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 the luxury of being in God's presence solely by themselves. And all of a sudden, you have people popping up here and there. And, and then eventually, all the saints, all those who are saved are going to be in the presence of God. You wonder if they're going to be jealous. Uh, no, I don't think so. Because there's not going to be any jealousy in heaven. 
because it's going to be a perfect place. See, there can't be a war between the glorified saints and the elect angels because it's an absolutely holy place. None of that will ever happen again. As a matter of fact, in Luke 15, there's three parables, a lost coin, a lost sheep, and a lost son. And it really illustrates the heart of God. And it says in verse 6 of Luke 15, when the man found the, the lost sheep, he called together his friends and his neighbors, and he said, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And then Christ gave the point of the story, I tell you, in verse 7, that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. See, God and his holy angels rejoice over a person when they come to Christ, when they repent over their sin. They turn away from their sin and they turn to God. They turn to Christ. In that second parable, the woman lost a coin. When she found it, verse 9, she says, together, she called her friends together, her neighbors, and she said, rejoice with me. And in verse 10, Christ says, in the same way I tell you that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so we find these angels rejoicing in heaven. They're not jealous because the church is redeemed. They rejoice over it. See, angels can never be redeemed. If there's a fallen angel, if there's a demon angel, he cannot be saved. There's no, there's no salvation for angels. So either you're a holy angel or an unholy angel. And the story of the son depicts the same truth. It says in verse 32, We had to be merry and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has become and begun to live what was lost and has been found. And all the servants and the father were called together and they had a feast and they rejoiced with him. See, those, those parables show us God's heart. They show us that God and angels, by the way, rejoice over the conversion of a sinner. And if they rejoice over our conversion, think what it's going to be like when we're there in our perfected, glorified bodies and we're in God's presence and we're fellowshipping, rejoicing with the angels. We're not only going to have communion and rejoice with the angels, but we're also going to be worshiping with them. Not worshiping, not worshiping them, we're going to be worshiping God with the angels. See, today I think in Christianity, a lot of people have almost gotten to the point where they, they worship angels. And they think somehow there's some power or that pleases God somehow. It doesn't. You don't worship anybody but God and God alone. That's very important to understand. But we'll be worshiping with the angels. Revelation chapter 4 tells us that, that we will join the angels in worshiping God. It says in verse 4, Revelation 4, around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Now a lot of people believe different things about these 24 elders, but they're probably most likely symbolic of the church. Symbolic of the church. Verse 6 says, Before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal, and in the center and around the throne four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And those angels, we're told, actually in Ezekiel 1, they resemble the same creatures that are there, and they're, they're known as angels. In verses 8 to 11 it says, Along with the 24 elders, all right, representing the redeemed men who will be in, in heaven, the angels and the redeemed men cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God. If you jump over to Revelation chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, it gives us a similar scene. It says, The four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having one harp, a golden bowl full of incense. You know you're going to play harps in heaven. Which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou. See, they're singing to the glory of Christ. They're singing to the glory of their, their Savior. And in verse 11, the apostle John there interjects, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads. 
In other words, he couldn't even count. Thousands of thousands. And they said, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Verse 13 says, every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne, to the lamb be blessed and honor and glory and dominion forever. So we're going to actually praise and worship God with angels in heaven forever. But I like this last one the best. We're going to be served by angels. We're going to be served by angels. In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14, the writer says of angels, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? See, that's, that's why we angels exist. Angels are here to minister to the church. You know, you, you think you're driving down the freeway and you thought it was just your driving skill that got you out of that fix when that guy pulled in front of you and you almost lost it. Well, the Bible says that there's such a thing as, as angels watching over us, guarding us. Angels are ministering spirits whose duty it is to serve the heirs of salvation. In Hebrews chapter 1, they're contrasted with Christ. Christ's destiny is to reign. Angels, their destiny is to serve. They were created to serve the redeemed. Not just now, but in all eternity. That's what, they're, that's what they were created to do. And we will reign with Christ. And those who serve Christ will serve us. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 7, says that God made Christ a little lower than the angels. We're familiar with that verse. When did that happen? It happened during his incarnation. When he humbled himself and he died, the death of the cross, as we're celebrating the Lord's table here this morning. He was made a little lower, it says, than the the angels, but only for a little while. Not permanently. The Bible then goes on to say that he was exalted and he was crowned with glory and honor. And now Christ reigns forevermore. See, I want you to know that right now we are a little lower than the angels in our physical bodies. We're not perfected. We have issues. But when we enter heaven, it says that we will reign with Jesus Christ. What a glorious thing. Ephesians 1.21 says, All rule and authority and power and dominion. That's what Christ is over. Revelation 3.21, Christ says, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. See, that's what a Christian is. A Christian is an overcomer. A Christian is someone who can stare death right in the face because they know that's not the end. They know there's a place in heaven awaiting them. God has promised that we'll sit on the throne with Christ at God's right hand. We will reign with Christ and the angels will be serving us. They'll be serving God. Hebrews 1.13 says, To which of the angels has he ever said this? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. See, we're going to commune with angels, we're going to rejoice with angels, we're going to praise God with them. But we will rule over them. That's what the Bible says. We will rule over angels. They will serve us in heaven. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says this, Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to the law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Paul was telling the Corinthians here not to sue other believers in the court of law, in the secular court. He said, that's not right. Don't do that. He continued. He says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And then he says, and if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? So he didn't want them taking each other to court. And you say, what's that have to do with angels? Well, jump down to verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 6. It says, do you not know that we shall judge? Literally, it means to rule or govern angels. See, that's going to be our position in heaven. So our relationship to angels will be one of communing, rejoicing, worshiping 
We're going to be serviced by them, but we're also going to rule over them. That's going to be part of our activity in heaven. Well, how about our family, the next group? People always want to know, will I be married to the same person in heaven? How's that going to work? What does the Bible say about that? What's our relationship going to be to our family? Some people love their their. Their, their spouses, they don't want the separation. And they can't imagine going to a place called heaven, as wonderful it's going to be, and not being married to that special loved one. You may be asking, will I have family uh, love? Will I understand fellowship among my family? Will our relationships in heaven be like they are here? Now, when you ask those questions and you try to answer those questions, you have to remember that in heaven, we're going to be what? We're going to be perfect in every way, right? We're going to be 100% perfected. And so when we consider those questions, it's important to remember, in heaven, we're going to be perfect. No one will ever say anything wrong. No one will ever do anything wrong. No one will ever even think anything wrong. It's going to be a perfect place. But I want you to turn over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Because I want to share a little bit about our relationships in heaven. What are we expected to uh, encounter there? Now, the Scripture speaks specifically to the issue of marriage and family. And if you read 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 7, you'll, you'll notice that's what the topic matter there is. That's what it's talking about. And look at verse uh, 29. Verse 29, Paul's dealing with this topic of family and being married or unmarried and everything. And he says in verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the, focus on this at the end of verse 31. For the present form of this world is what? Passing away, it says. So Paul here in the context, he lists some things that are passing away. What are they? Marriage, weeping, earthly rejoicing, earthly ownership. The world is passing away. It refers to the, the, that form of the world. It refers to the, the fashion, the manner of life, the way we do things down here. It's one day going to pass away. See, Paul was saying that we should take what life brings Yet be very careful that we're not engulfed in it. Because if we're engulfed in it, that's just part of the form of the world that's going to eventually pass away. It's temporary. Now, what am I saying? Even though the responsibilities of marriage are wonderful, the blessings are wonderful, what Paul is saying here is don't allow your marriage to become an excuse for your failure to serve God. In other words, you never want your marriage to be above your relationship with God. You don't ever want your marriage to be the reason you're not serving God. That's what he says. Put treasure in heaven. Right? Set up your affections on things above. I mean, we're going to experience sorrow. We're going to experience joy. And we're going to, in this world, we're going to buy what we need to buy. But what he's saying is don't let our emotions, don't let our possessions, you might say, control us to the point where we become so entangled in this passing world because one day it's going to be gone. Now, look at what it says in verse 32. He goes on and he says, One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord. I can testify to that. I didn't get married until I was 33 years of age. Never even thought of marriage. Wasn't even on the radar. 
I wasn't concerned with it. I just wanted to serve the Lord, and that's what I did. How he may please the Lord, it says. But one who is married is concerned about what? What's it say? The things of the world. How he may please his wife. Now, that's not bad. It's not, it's not pitting one against the other. That's not the purpose here. It's just stating a fact. You know, when I was single, I could sleep in my car. I didn't really care. It didn't make any difference to me. I could go out on Thanksgiving and drive up and down 580 out there until I found a homeless person and take him out for a Thanksgiving dinner and then put him in a hotel and, and then just go about my day. Thinking, hey, you know what? Help somebody out. Never forget the first year I tried that when we were married. <laughs> My wife said, we're going to do what? <laughs> do you know this person? No. I do it every, eh, you know, I got a 12-year-old daughter. You want us to go pick up some stranger out in the middle of nowhere and take him to, ah. See? See how that happens? It just, it just happens. It doesn't mean it's bad. But you know what? It probably wouldn't be wise for me to do some of the things that I did when I was single when I'm married and you have the responsibility of a family. That's his point. But he says that marriage is going to be passing away. Marriage isn't the end all in life. I, sometimes single people, you know, they, they get so uptight that they haven't found the right person yet and, and boy, they're just pining away and they're just making it such a major obstacle in their life. And I mean, my word to them is say, you know what? Just relax. Take a chill pill. Just stop. If God wants you married, then you'll be married. And in his time, not yours. Put your trust in him. Don't, you know, don't get on this online dating and all this stuff. I mean, think of what goes on today just to try to find that, that special relationship. You know, if you're single here today, I would say, you know what? You're single because God wants you. He wants your attention. He wants your focus to be on him. And until God brings that special person into your life, you, you just become absorbed with God and with his word and with his will for your life. And you serve him the best you can. Because you know what? You have the opportunity to do it. People who are married are concerned about other things. They don't always have the freedom to just do whatever God is calling them to do. So if you can remain single, remain single. But you know what? If that's an issue for you, then get married. But wait on the Lord to work that out. Don't try to push it. Don't try to make it happen yourself. Concentrate on the things of the Lord because you know what? Marriage is just a temporary provision for our time here on earth. That's all it is. We're not going to be married in heaven. Doesn't mean we're to become indifferent to our marriages. That's not what he's saying. Rather, it means that, that God has given us this wonderful gift of marriage in the present scheme of things, in our present day life, and we need to enjoy it to the fullest. It's one of the graces of life, 1 Peter 3, 7. But you know what? One day it's going to pass away. You say, well, how do you know that? Look at, and we've, we've gone through this before, Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, just quickly, because we've, we've looked at this before, but in verse 23 of chapter 22 of Matthew, remember some of the Sadducees, and they were... They didn't believe in the resurrection. And so they came to Jesus and they started questioning him. They wanted to trick him. The Pharisees taught that after the resurrection, each person would have the same relationships he has here. That's what they taught. He would be married in the same, to the same woman, have the same family forever. That's just what they believed. They believed the next life would be just like this one. But the Sadducees, they didn't believe in any resurrection at all. And so they, they really thought the Pharisees were way out to lunch. And so in verse 24, they come to Jesus and they ask him this question. Now remember, in this culture, when a wife would die, if that husband had a brother, it was a brother's duty, it was just the, the culture in which they lived, to step up to the plate, marry the widow, and give her children. That's, that's what they would do if he wasn't already married. That's what their role was. And so they paint this scenario for him in verse 24. They, they say, if a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up an offspring to his brother. That's found in Deuteronomy 25, by the way. And they were right. That's what it says. So then they come up with this hypothetical scenario. See, because their whole point is to disprove the resurrection. 
So they, they, they paint this scenario in verse 25. They say, there are seven brothers with us. And the first married and died, having no offspring, left his wife to his brother, and also the second and the third, all the way down to the seventh. So all these brothers die. They all marry this girl, don't give her any kids, and, and they end up dying. I don't, I don't know what was wrong with this lady, but boy, she really went through the husband's quick. I'd be a little concerned if I was number seven at that point. You know, how many times you married seven? Well, what happened? Oh, they're all dead, you know, before we can even have kids. You know, I might pause. That might cause pause to enter that kind of a relationship. But for whatever reason, this is a hypothetical. And so they said these guys keep dying, and, they, they, and their question is this. He says, in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven shall she be? See, they're playing off on what the Pharisees believe. The Pharisees believe that marriage continued into heaven. And so they said, hey, we'll, we'll make a mockery of Jesus. You know, so this guy, this, this, this poor woman goes through seven husbands. Now, in heaven, who's, who's going to be her husband? Can't be all seven. That wouldn't be right. And look at what Jesus says to them. The end there in verse 30, he says, But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not, mis- not understanding the scriptures or the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither what? Marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Heavens have no marital relationships. All the angels were created at one time. They don't procreate. Christ's words teach that men here will be men in eternity. We're going to be the same thing. We're not, we're, we're not just some kind of a neutral person over there. No, men who are men on earth will be men in eternity. The women who are here now will be women in eternity. But there's not going to be any marrying or giving in marriage. That's what the Bible says. In that way, we're going to be like the angels. And you stop and you say, well, why wouldn't there be any marriage in heaven? That, why, wouldn't, why would God take that away? Well, stop and go back for the reason for marriage in the first place. What was the reason that, that Eve was created? Because man needed a what? A helper, right? That's what, that's the, what the Bible says in Genesis. God created Eve because man was alone and he needed somebody to help him out. Well, what did the woman need a husband for? She needed a protector, the Bible tells us. And the result of that relationship, God designed that relationship of marriage so that the end result could be to produce children, to procreate. That was the, the, you know, multiply the earth. That was the the instruction. We have to understand in heaven, guys, we're not going to need any help. (laughs) We're not going to need any help. And ladies, you're not going to need someone to protect you. And no one will be born in heaven because only the redeemed can live there. Now you might be sitting here saying, well, are you telling me I'm not going to know my husband or my, my wife? And I'm happily married. I mean, that doesn't make me want to look forward to heaven. My wife's my best friend, my dearest companion. You know what? That's good. You'll enjoy that companionship with her in heaven forever. Along with every other person in heaven as well. Can you imagine having such a deep relationship with your spouse here being so wonderful? Imagine how wonderful it's going to be to enjoy the best of human relationships, glorified to the point that you'll enjoy the same relationship equally with every person there. That's something to look forward to. So we see our relationships in heaven with our family will still be there. We'll, we, we will identify individuals. How about other believers? Our relationship to other believers. And this kind of ties in with what we just said. First of all, we're going to have an unchanged identity. We will be forever who we are now. <laughs> Some of you might go, oh, no, <laughs> you know, don't say that. Well, let me tell you, Genesis 25, 8 says, Abraham breathed his last and he died in a ripe old age, an old man, satisfied with life. And then it says this, he was gathered to his people. 
See, whenever someone died in the Old Testament, it always says he was gathered to his people. Implying that those who died maintained their identities. They went to their people. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23, David says about a child who he lost. A child died. He says, now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? No. But I shall go to him. But he shall not return to me. See, David knew that both he and his child would maintain their identities. He knew that in heaven he would identify his son. In heaven, everyone will maintain their identity. I mean, it's going to be a diverse group of individuals, let me tell you. Also, in the New Testament, it illustrates that our identities won't be changed. In Luke chapter 22, verses 17 to 18, while, passing, while serving the, the Passover meal with his disciples, having that, Christ said this, Take this cup and share it among yourselves, for I say to you, and this is what he said, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. So what Jesus is saying here is this was a time of fellowship. This was a time with his disciples. They were eating, they were drinking together. And he said, you know what? This isn't going to happen again, guys, until the kingdom of God. But we're going to be able to do this again. We're going to be able to sit down and have a meal together. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 11, speaking about the millennial kingdom, He said this, I say to you that many shall come from the east and the west reclining at the table with Abraham. He lists the people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So if he's listing them by name, they must be able to be recognized somehow. In Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 and 9, it says this, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linens, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. See, there's going to be a marriage supper in heaven for the Lamb and His bride, the church. And the guests that are going to be there are the Old Testament and the the, uh, tribulation saints. All the redeemed will maintain their identity forever. It's just going to be in a perfected form. It's going to be perfect. I mean, we're going to be able to fellowship. Think about this with Enoch, with Noah, with Abraham, Samuel, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, Esther, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, David, Peter, Barnabas, Paul, family members that have gone before. And we're all going to be ourselves. We're all going to maintain our identity. In Matthew chapter 17, we see the appearance of Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. And you know what? Even though they died centuries before, they still maintained their identity. As a matter of fact, Peter, James, and John recognized them, it tells us, in verse 4 of Matthew 17. Which kind of implies that, I mean, obviously they never saw Moses or Elijah before. They never saw them before, physically. I mean, they died years before. But Peter, James, and John were able to recognize them in their glorified form, which somehow implies that we're going to be able to recognize people that we've never seen before. I don't know about you, but for someone who has a hard time remembering people's names, I'm looking forward to that. (laughs) To get up there and, hey, Joe, how you doing? You know, nothing's going to be, ah, what was your name? Where do I know you from? It's not going to happen. We're going to be intimately acquainted with everybody that was there. We'll instantly know everyone and enjoy their company. But we're never going to cease to be who we are. Remember, Jesus told the thief on the cross, what did he say? Today you shall be what? With me. Right? In paradise. That relationship is going to continue. It's going to be in paradise, though. They reached heaven together as distinct persons. When the Sadducees tried to trap Jesus about the resurrection, he cited Exodus 3, 6. I am the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And then he says this in verse 32. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. What did he mean by that? He meant that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive. They're living in the presence of God. Even in Luke 16, we see where the rich man died and went to hell. And 
the beggar Lazarus died and went to heaven, both maintained their identities. And so will we. Not only will we maintain our identities, but Revelation 2.17 says, To him who overcomes, I will give a new name. A new name. In heaven, our identities will not change, but our names will. Revelation 3.5 says, He who overcomes, thus shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father. Christ will confess our perfected eternal names before God. Verse 12 says, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Every believer there will be redeemed, will be in glory, will be perfected, will be bearing the name of God and Christ. We're also have the opportunity to have a loving reunion. You know, people say, well, when you die, are you reunited with your family and friends in heaven? Yes, I believe you are. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 14 promises the church of the, the, the rapture. And in verse 18, it says, comfort one another with these words. In other words, hey, yeah, you're going to be gone from here, but you know what? You're going to be in glory and you're going to be, you know, interacting once again with each other. That comfort comes from the prospect of reunion. They, they feared, some of the Thessalonians feared that those who died might miss the, the rapture, or they might miss the second coming or whatever, and Paul is saying, no, 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 no. That's a comforting time. We're not going to miss anything. We'll know everyone, and we'll know our loved ones. going to be a just a incredible place to be well what's our relationship to god going to be in heaven and we'll close with this hodge who's a theologian wrote this he said heaven as the eternal home of the divine man and of all the redeemed members of the human race must necessarily be thoroughly human in its structure, conditions, and activities. Its joys and its occupations must all be rational, moral, emotional, voluntary, and active. There must be the exercise of all faculties, the gratification of all tastes, the development of all talent capabilities, and the realization of all ideals. The reason, the intellectual curiosity, the imagination, the aesthetic instincts, the holy affections, the social infinities, the inexhaustible resources of strength and power native to the human soul must all find in heaven exercise and satisfaction. I mean, that's why we can say, as the psalmist wrote in Psalm 116, 15, precious is the sight, in the sight of the Lord is the death of the godly ones. We're going to be going to a place to have fellowship, not only with each other, but with God. How are we going to relate with God? We're going to have fellowship with Him. The first thing that we note is that we will be with Him. We'll be with Him. In 1 John 1, 3, it says our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. See, when we become believers, we enter into that communion. God's life becomes ours, so we become identified with Him. Psalm 69, 9 says, the reproaches of those who approach him have fallen on us. Why? Because we're identified with him. His will becomes our will. His purpose becomes our purpose. And even though we're hindered down here on earth by this sinful body in which we live in this sinful world, the deepest part of our soul is united with the living God. And we should desire to do what he desires us to do. When we get to heaven we will have full fellowship with God, unhindered. See, here our communion with God is incomplete. It's not full because of our sinfulness. But when we enter into heaven, somehow we're going to enter into the full, unhindered fellowship of God. 
In his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus prayed in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, in other words, all who come to believe in Christ, who you gave to me, will be with me where I am. So heaven is a place where we will be having fellowship with God. In John 14, the disciples basically, Jesus just told the disciples, you can't go where I'm going right now. I'm going to be leaving. I'm going to be going back to my father. You can't, you can't come right now. But he says in verse 14 to comfort their hearts, he says, let your heart not be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would not have told you. For I go and I prepare a place for you. See, we're going to be in heaven. We're going to have a place in the Father's house. You're not going to have your own house out on the the back 40 somewhere all by yourself. No. Everybody who goes to heaven lives in one house. It's called the Father's house. There's only one house in heaven, the dwelling place of God. So it's an interesting venture when you think about it. You know, we sing that song, I've got a mansion, oh, it's over the hilltop. You know, we think of it, we're all going to have this palatial place. Well, trust me, it's going to be even more than that. But our dwelling place is all going to be together in one house. I think of the grandkids coming in June. and You know, we're all going to be living in the same house for about a month. <laughs> so I'm thinking, well, maybe, you know, take the sin out. Maybe this is what heaven's going to be like. I don't know. <laughs> but we're going to enter into the fellowship with God and his son. It's going to be a wonderful thing. But we're also going to be able to see, see God. We're going to have a vision of God. We're going to actually observe him. Um... In heaven, we can actually see the Lord. Some people are quick to point out, well, Exodus 33.10 says that no man can see me and live. John 1.18 says no man has seen God at any time. 1 Timothy 6.16 declares that alone possesses immortality and dwells in unfathomable light, God is, whom no man has seen or can see. In Exodus 33, Moses just got to see the backside of God. So as long as we're tainted by sin, beloved, we can't see God. But when we will be in heaven, we'll be free from sin. But I think even in heaven, we won't see God in his infinity because he is infinite. We are finite but we're definitely going to have some comprehension of who God is. We'll be able to see God in a way that we can't see him now. I don't know what that, the Bible doesn't tell us, but I think that we will. Um, so it's something to look forward to. In Matthew 5, 8, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? They shall see God. speaks of a continuous reality in the environment where we're in the presence of God. Psalm 42, 1 and 2 says, As a deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living, when I shall come and appear. When shall I come and appear before God? So we will see him moving. We will see his glory. We'll see everything about God in heaven. But we're also going to not just see him observe, observation-wise, but we're going to spiritually compre- be able to comprehend who he is. 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve says, Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we'll see face to face. Now I know in part, Paul writes, but then I shall know fully, just as I have also been fully known. Somehow in heaven we're going to have a full comprehension of who God is. First John says, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. I don't know about you, but I'm excited about the prospects of being in a place where we're going to not only be able to relate to one another, relate to our families, but in a more fuller sense, relate to God and to Jesus Christ, our Savior. 
Uh, that, should, that should give us uh, something to look forward to. Fanny Crosby, who wrote a lot of different hymns, wrote this hymn, My Savior, first of all, and it says this, When my life work is ended and I crossed the swelling tide, when the bright and glorious morning I shall see, I shall know my Redeemer when I reach the other side, and His smile will be the first to welcome me. Through the gates of the city, in a robe of spotless white, He will lead me where no tears will ever fall. In the glad song of ages, I shall mingle with delight. But I long to meet my Savior first of all. Interesting thing is Fanny Crosby was blind. So the first person, when she passed away, she ever saw was her Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see the Lord, we'll be with the Lord, and I pray that your heart is ready, prepared to meet him. We don't know when that time will come. Life sometimes dishes us out some difficult circumstances to deal with. But you know what? God is always there for us, to meet us, to care for us, to prepare our hearts for a place called heaven. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Before the worship team comes, I just pray that you would uh, do your work uh, in the hearts of these people gathered here. Lord, that we would desire to be in a place where there's no sorrow, there's no fear, There's no tears. Lord, there's only love and goodness and gracious and holiness and righteousness. Father, we'll be in your presence. I pray for anyone who's who's yet to put their faith or trust in you yet. I pray that they would turn from pursuing their own agenda and turn to you. Lord, heaven is a real place and the only ticket there is is what you do with the Lord Jesus Christ. You, You commit your life to follow him. Give him control of your life. And uh, he'll one day meet you in heaven. Father, we just ask that you would uh, do your work in our hearts as we prepare for our communion time. And I just uh, thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.